back to another glorious episode of Fantarctica. My name is Noemi, I am a nerd for many things but especially polar explorers and we are going to dive right into it. I wanted to release another episode right away because in the first episode we really just established how and when Antarctica was first discovered. It's an introduction and less of a story than I'd like the rest of the podcast to be. the Royal Geographical Society held the 6th International Geographical Congress in London and two sessions were devoted to Antarctica. This effectively laid the foundation for the so-called heroic age of Antarctic exploration. Just to remind you, the actual existence of Antarctica was not proven until 1820 and its complete mapping was not accomplished until the late 1950s. The main reason for this was its inaccessibility. Pack ice and stormy weather held off ships and it was not until maritime technology had advanced to the point where longer research expeditions were possible that the Antarctic could be explored in its entirety. Between 1897 and 1922, a total of 17 expeditions were undertaken under the flags of nine different countries. However, the term heroic age wasn't actually coined until 1956 when it was mentioned in an article about Ernest Shackleton in the Times. Upon the scene enters Belgian naval lieutenant Adria de Gerlacher de Gomery, who I'm just going to call Adrian for the rest of the episode. My tongue just can't twist from English to Flemish quickly enough to not completely butcher his name. Adrian had wanted to travel to Antarctica for quite a while, but as the Congress was being held in 1895, he finally decided to set off on his own initiative. As someone who's been meaning to do this podcast for years and then only started when Ernest Shackleton's endurance was finally found. I can relate to Adrian quite well at this point. So his plan was to head for the Antarctic Peninsula where he and three other men would spend the winter. In the spring they would try to reach the magnetic south pole. In the meantime the rest of the crew would spend the winter in Melbourne and pick up the four men again in the summer. Adrian's a man with a plan and we like it. However though Adrian's plans were slowed down and postponed from the start by quite a number of obstacles that would affect the course of the entire expedition. There were financial issues to start with but what was really lacking was the composition of his crew. They were severely understaffed and until the actual fucking day of departure the crew changed continuously. After Adrian and most of the crew left Antwerp on the 16th of August 1897, they first encountered engine problems, then two of the sailors quit and had to be replaced en route to Antarctica. And to add insult to injury, Adrian also fired five men once they had reached Chile and he twice dismissed a cook. Eventually he had to hand the galley over to the steward, who claimed to be good at cooking, but spoiler alert, he was not. <laughs> What's more, the Belgica, a whaling ship with a 160 HP auxiliary steam engine, was so overloaded with provisions, ammunition and research equipment that there was a constant threat of capsizing during the Atlantic crossing. Eventually the crew consisted of 19 men, namely 11 officers and scientists and 8 sailors. It was a multilingual mixture without a single common language. The geologist and the assisting meteorologist were Polish, the naturalist was Romanian, the naval officers were all exclusively Belgian, except for one Norwegian. I think he's the most surprising crew member of all, 
because it's none other than Roald Amundsen, the man who would later go down in history as the first person to reach the South Pole. While harboring in Rio de Janeiro, Adrian convinced the American doctor Frederick Cook to join them, seeing as the doctor Adrian had initially hired quit the day before departure. Cook had already lived in Greenland for a year and actually had some experience with wintering in the polar regions. But Adrian's request was still extremely fucking spontaneous and Cook was not prepared for the trip at all. In his memoirs, Cook wrote, I should have had a longer time to afford better means to prepare for a journey of this kind, to consent by cable to cast my lot in a battle against the supposedly unsurmountable icy barriers of the south with total strangers, men from another continent, speaking a language strange to me, does indeed seem right. It does a bit, Frederick, not gonna lie, it does seem a bit rash. Especially considering that on top of his medical duties, Cook was also to act as the official photographer. In January 1898, the crew was assembled and sailing south from Argentina. It was just a few days after their departure though that the Norwegian sailor Carl August Wienke drowned in the raging sea after being washed overboard while trying to remove pieces of coal from his coppers. For a group of men who had never sailed on polar waters before, this was a great shock. For the first time, they became acutely aware of just how much at the mercy of wild nature they really were in these regions. their initial shock, the men on board the Belgica started with their research activities. Every hour they sounded the depth of the sea and measured the temperature, precipitation and air pressure. They also mapped various islands and conducted geological investigations and soon Adrian and the Polish geologist Henry Gaktowski drew the conclusion that Antarctica had to be an independent continent covered by an ice shell. In March 1898, just before the start of the Antarctic winter, the Belgica crossed 71 degrees south, the furthest south anyone had ever been. The original plan was to find a wintering place for the four men and build a hut for their research. The rest of the crew would then sail back to Melbourne in Australia. But the coastline of Antarctica was completely unknown still, so the men had no idea whether they should winter along the Antarctic coast or somewhere else. Adrian insisted on continuing south, even though the rest of the men were strongly against it. On the 3rd of March, the Belgica was surrounded by pack ice. They were unable to progress any further and equally unable to retreat. Rescue was a virtual impossibility. And I mean, I can understand what the men must feel like at this point. I've never been to Antarctica, but I have been on trains throughout Germany. And when they get stuck, boys, they're no moving about. <laughs> so now instead of having a good six months in Australia ahead of them, with beaches and hammocks and margaritas, you know, the stuff humanity's been dreaming about since the Middle Ages, the entire crew now had to spend all fucking winter in the ice. At that point in history, not much is known about Antarctica. But one thing even those men knew is this. Winter in Antarctica is fucking dark. There is no sun. And what's more, it now also gets really fucking boring. All they could hope for was to be able to free themselves from the pack ice in the Antarctic summer between November and January. We have to say though that Adrian was very excited by the prospect of staying put in the ice. In his diary he wrote, we were about to become the first to spend the winter in the Antarctic pack, and this fact alone promised plenty of data to collect and phenomena to study. Was this not what we had asked for? And to be fair, the scientists did make the most of their bad situation. 
they could study the ice in peace. A large number of previously unknown creatures were fished out of the gaps in the pack ice. They could carry out further meteorological measurements. For the first time, people were able to study and explore the coastal areas of Antarctica. Another thing about Antarctica at this time of year is that it's actually quite lovely. Adrian describes at great length how the pack ice glistens in the sun. The plane, he writes, as if powdered with diamonds, sparkles under the clear sun. The icebergs and the hummocks raise their silver edges and project behind them diaphanous shadows of a blue so pure that they seem a flap detached from the sky. I can only imagine how pissed the rest of the crew are at this point. They could be chilling in Australia by now, but instead, here they are, having this guy go on and on in French about how pretty the ice they're stuck in is. The fact that so many different nationalities are on board the Belgica finally comes in handy though. It means that there are an excessive number of national holidays that can be celebrated. And as we all know, there is nothing like a good party to pass the time. There's a very good description of a Belgian holiday in Cook's memoirs. It is the birthday of King Leopold of the Belgians today. The commander has made it a holiday and ordered a special menu with a liberal supply of wine to the officers and crew. All are expected to celebrate in good form. We enjoy these days of rest, recreation and change from the usual formula with regular work and we conscientiously point out far in advance legal holidays of all lands and the birthdays of each of the men of the Belgica. It is a slow week when we have not succeeded in having at least one day set aside as a period of special feeding followed by a flow of champagne. A lot of the time though, they called Antarctica the Ladyless South. These men, who in my head take on more and more the forms of teenage boys, were so desperate for women that they held a beauty contest. For this, they cut out 500 pictures of women from magazines and showed them to each other and rated them. And I guess it just goes to show how extremely lonely and bored they were because this is marked as a highlight of their journey. Cook writes, The excitement of the contest has been such that a new life and a new stream of ideas are coming over our frosty spirits. As much as the remaining sunlight allowed it, the men kept going about their day-to-day -day work. They did geological and astrological research, they repaired, mended whatever they could on the ship, but at the same time, their living situation became more uncomfortable with each passing day. The humidity below the deck was so high, Cook called it the agent of Satan. The men's clothing and the ship's rooms were constantly damp, so that small icebergs actually formed even in the sleeping quarters. On May 16th, the sun set for the last time, and it would not rise again for 70 days. This massively dampened everybody's mood, as we can probably all well imagine. Cook describes this in his diary. The curtain of blackness, which has fallen over the outer world of icy desolation, has also descended upon the inner world of our souls. Also, it probably didn't help matters that Adrian hadn't hired a proper chef, because the food was absolute shite. This is how Adrian himself described it. His culinary efforts, in which to be sure imagination was certainly not lacking, insofar as he was capable of putting together the most disparate of ingredients, were in general hardly successful. The only thing he was always good at was soup, though it must be added that all he had to do was to heat it up without even needing to add salt. Honestly, this would have been terrible under the best and brightest of circumstances. Now, however, they're stuck in the ice, it's completely dark, they're bored out of their goddamn minds and there's no fucking comfort food, not to mention that the appointment of an incompetent cook could prove downright life-threatening. And it wasn't all the cook's fault either. 
Adrian had forbidden the consumption of penguin and seal meat because he didn't like the taste. The crew was gradually succumbing to scurvy, and Cook, the doctor, not the actual cook, remembered that the native people he had met in the Arctic actually didn't suffer from that disease, and he attributed that to the fact that they ate raw seal meat. From then on, raw meat, together with milk and cranberry sauce, was back on the menu. The men's health improved very quickly after that. Getting the meat was another story altogether. Only Amundsen had experience in killing penguins and seals. And soon he and Cook became the virtual leaders of the expedition, especially as Adrian became too seriously ill to continue leading himself. The new diet couldn't save all of the men, unfortunately. One of the scientists, Emil Danko, who had already suffered from heart problems on departure, died on the 5th of June. The men buried him in the ice, and soon his death was followed by a second tragedy that seemed to hit the crew similarly hard. It was the death of their ship cat, Nansen. The cat had been afflicted with an insidious depression since it had become fully dark. Obviously, Cook wrote about this tragic event in his diary too. A day or two ago, his life departed, we presume for more congenial regions. We are glad that his torture is ended, but we miss Nansen very much. He has been the attribute to our good fortune to the present, the only speck of sentimental life within reach. We have showered upon him our affections, but the long darkness has made him turn against us. In the future, we shall be without a musket. And what will be our fate? It was as if the deaths of their mate and the cat had confirmed a deep fear in the men. What if they too would not live to see the sunrise? The dark and the cold had an impressive effect on the men's looks. Their hair started to grow very fast, yet at the same time, all of them turned grey, even though most of them weren't even 30 yet. Almost all of the men complained of headaches and insomnia and suffered from dizzy spells. Cook called this disease polar anemia and he feared that it would weaken the heart to such an extent that none of his patients would have more than a month left to live. So he developed the so-called baking treatment, which was supposed to get all the crew members back on their feet in the shortest possible time. He took turns putting the men in front of the oven for a few hours every day, wearing nothing but their underwear, and it actually seemed to regulate the heartbeat. And because Cook considered artificial light to be just as important as heat, some of the men started building a lamp, which in turn gave them something to do. Cook himself actually fared quite well during this time. He was kept on his toes by the moral leadership of the expedition and had little opportunity to indulge in melancholy. And things actually got much better as the Antarctic night wore on, because each day that passed meant that the next sunrise would be a day closer. The men were so excited at the prospect of seeing the sun again that weeks in advance they all chose their special vantage point on the ship from where they would watch the sunrise. But the excitement was short-lived. Even in August, the sun was barely there and the men's health, which had been so strong until then, declined again. At the beginning of 1899, the Belgica was still trapped in the pack ice, and one of the men actually went insane and died. The Antarctic summer began in October 1898, but no release from the pack ice was in sight. By now, the Belgica had drifted a total of 3,000 kilometers in the pack ice. Cook grew increasingly concerned that some of the men would not survive a second winter in the ice. They rationed supplies more strictly now and continued with Cook's baking treatment and scientific research to keep busy. In mid-February 1899, observations revealed that they were close to the open ocean. Once they were only about 600 meters away, 
the men began to cut the channel through the pack ice. They made very limited progress though, and they started using tonite explosives to blast the pack ice. Artovsky and Amundsen attempted to put the explosives in a cookie tin, hack them into the ice, and only then carry out the detonation. But in early March, the stormmen did their hard work and closed the shipping channel again. In an attempt to reopen the fairway, the explosives ran out. Now the crew was left with only their own muscles and ice picks. Finally, in mid-March, a storm ripped open the shipping channel so that on March 14, 1899, after 377 days of pack ice drift, the Belgica was once again in the open sea. Throughout the 377 days of drifting in the pack ice, Adrian and Amundsen had been continuously arguing over the leadership because Amundsen thought that Adrian was incompetent as a leader and Adrian didn't like his authority questioned. Now that the crew had been rescued though, the dispute between Amundsen and Adrian resurfaced. They reached Punta Arenas, the capital of Tierra del Fuego in Chile, on March 28, 1899. Adrian left the ship in protest. The Belgica was repaired and then sailed to Buenos Aires without him. From there, the ship sailed home on August 14th. The Belgica reached Boulogne-sur-Mer on October 30th and Antwerp on the 5th of November 1899, where the crew was enthusiastically received. Adrian de Gerlach's voyage was a hassle and he may have lost three men and a cat on the way, but it also set a historic milestone. The voyage of the Belgica inspired no fewer than 16 research expeditions to the Antarctic from eight different countries until 1917. Well, dear listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed this first Antarctic adventure story. Please rate and subscribe. I hear it does a lot of good. You can also recommend this podcast. Tell a mate, tell your mom, tell your florist. The more people that listen to this podcast, the less awkward it is for me to sit alone in my room and talk into a wardrobe. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at fantartica.noemi at gmail.com. You can also find the podcast on Instagram under at fantartica. And if you want more information on the podcast, you can find it on my website, noemiharnickel.com forward slash fantartica. There's going to be a proper website for this podcast eventually. It's just taking a shitload of time and I do have a job. So, you know, stay tuned for this. This has been Fantartica. It is created, hosted and produced by me, Noemi Harnickel. And we will set sail again whenever I'm free. And soon his death was followed by a second strategy. And soon his death was followed by a second tragedy. Tr- tragedy. Yeah. <laughs>